And open your Bibles, get your devices, and we want to look at this great text. Because here in this text, we see that Jesus is answering questions before we even know to ask them. If you think about it, so much of Jesus' ministry, his teaching ministry, was asking questions of people. He did that constantly. Whether it was the benign question from, let's say, him to his mom in John chapter 2, Woman, why would you involve me with this? My time has not yet come. Why would you bring me into this now? He's getting her to think through that question. Or if it's the more direct uh, question, like he said to Simon Peter, I know, I know what everybody else thinks about me. Who do you think that I am, Simon Peter? That was a more direct question. But Jesus, if you read through the Gospels, he asks so many questions. But what's particular about Jesus is this. He also answers the questions that he knows that we're going to ask before we even ask them. It's amazing. And so when you look through John chapter 15, he's huddled in this room with his disciples. He's about to die. He knows that. They're uh, a little bit obscure on some of the details. He knows where he's going. He knows he's going to leave them. And he also knows... When this happens, you're going to have all of these questions. So let me go ahead and answer these questions for you now, so that in 48 hours from now, when these questions pop up, if you can remember my words, you'll already know the answers to them. And as you read through the Gospels, if you're not a believer today, just read the Gospels that way, because that's how God constantly works. He's answering the questions that you don't even know you've asked before you ask them. And one of the first and primary questions that he answers to these disciples in John chapter 15 is this. Do I have to be alone? It's a question that so many of us ask. Am I going to be alone in the rest of my life? Am I going to be alone in this marriage for the rest of my life? Am I going to be never married? Am I ever going to find a friend that's a true friend to me? Do I have to be alone in this life? Jesus knows he's about to leave them. They're going to be disillusioned. They're going to be lonely. Their leader is going to leave. And he answers that question for them. Let me just read verses 1 through 11. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Let me stop there. And I want you to imagine being in that room with Christ, with all the anxieties, with all the nervousness that's going on, with all the uncertainty of what's going to happen in the future, and Jesus saying this to you like he was saying it to them. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it might bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, and as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I 
loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The main point here of this text, when they're going to be thinking uh, just a few short hours from here, we're so alone. You left us. There's nobody around us. We're disillusioned. We're lonely. What he's going to remind them of is this. No, abide in me. What does abide mean? It means remain, stay, to be connected to. So even though I'm gone, still remain with me, still stay connected with me. In other words, the gospel is not I get my degree, I get my salvation, and then I graduate and I don't think about Jesus anymore. Or what he did for me on the cross was great. I confessed my sins when I was in a junior high camp. I don't have to go back to the gospel anymore. I can graduate from that. No, Jesus says, the way that you deal with your loneliness, the way that you deal with feeling alone all the time, even if you have friends, even if you have a great marriage, even if you have all of these things, the way you deal with that is to abide with me. I'm the vine and you're the branches. And if you abide with me, you can have all of this wonderful fruit, but you have to stay connected. We just had a ruling elder in this church uh, climb uh, Denali in Alaska. And I just had some friends who are members of this church. Uh, they just climbed Kilimanjaro in Africa. They just made it to the ascent. Uh, two or three days ago. Uh, and I'm sure that most of those people paid an exorbitant amount of fees for guides. And the guides say, remain with me. Stay with me. I'm going to attach this belay to you. I'm going to say clipped to you. Nobody ever gets to the top of Everest, K2, Denali, or Kilimanjaro, pick whatever mountain you want to, and says, Look, I'm going to go my own way today. I'm just going to figure it out myself. I I see a route that looks kind of good over there. I think I'll go. No, no. all the guides, every point of a guide is to say, stay with me and I can lead you there. Stay with me and I can guide you through whatever you're going to go through. And so here's what Jesus says, abide with me. And if you abide with me, if you stay connected to me, you're going to bear insane amounts of fruit. Like, it's just going to come out of you. And the fruit of the Spirit, according to Galatians, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If you stay connected with me, if you abide with me, if you remain with me, you're going to bear all of this fruit. And when you start bearing a little bit of fruit, you know what the Father's going to do? He's the gardener. And he's going to come in. Don't be scared. And he's going to cut away some things of your life, not to damage you, not, not because he's trying to you know, make your life hard so that you can bear even more fruit. And that's the whole goal. When I leave you, stay with me so you can bear all of this beautiful fruit. And what's the fruit? Let's just look at a, a few things because it's, it's beautiful and rich. When we were in Sequoia, uh, Elizabeth found this great Airbnb in the middle of an orchard field. I don't know how she found it. But here, this family owned all of these orchards for miles and miles and miles. And they had a house in the middle of them. And I remember it was a Sunday morning. I was up before anybody else in the family and I walked outside and I had my quiet time. I prayed for you because I missed you guys. And I walked into the field, these orchards, and I just started picking fruit. You know, I didn't mess with the fruit that was on the ground, but I started picking this fruit. It was just falling right off. And I took that stolen fruit and I ate it right there in the vineyard. It was so fresh, pulled right from the vine. If you say abiding with Christ, 
You're going to produce all of this beautiful fruit. That's the vision for your life that we should be having. So what's some of the fruit? Well, first, you're going to have safety. Look at verse 6. If anyone does not abide with me, he goes through this analogy of the wheat and the tares, uh, you're going to be gathered together and thrown and burned into the fire. So hearkening back to all of this language about hell and the grave and all of that. But the safety is this. If you abide with Christ, he's not going to pull you away from Christ. He's not going to uproot the work of Christ. So you have safety in the gospel. His righteousness is your righteousness. You're so tangled up with him that there's no way that you can be separated in the judgment. There's no way you can be separated out because where you are is where he is. You're abiding with him. You're trusting in his righteousness. You're trusting in his sufficiency. And you're all tangled up with Jesus. And so you can't be tossed away into the fire. So you get safety. Second, you get resources. This is a beautiful, just pull these fruits out of here and just look at them and and taste them and see what you get in the gospel when you follow Jesus You get resources. Look at verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Now some of you say, Andy, that's a little too far, isn't it? I mean, God's not a genie in the bottle. Do we just get to ask whatever we want and he's going to give it? Well, that's what he said. But also, Jesus is smart enough to answer the question that you would ask if you were smart enough to know what to pray for. He's not going to give you something that's going to be bad for you. But here's what I want to suggest. Most of you read over verse 7 and you just kind of dust it off. But most of you and most of, well, let me be honest. I myself have never really put this verse to the test. I mean, really put it to the test. Like really praying for like decades. Or really praying fervently for years. God, I'm your, I'm your child. I, I beg, I beg for you to save that neighbor of mine. I, I beg for you to help me defeat this sin in my life. I am begging for you to give me more patience in my marriage. I'm begging for you to give me a gentle spirit. Most of us just read over it. We haven't even put it to the test. And here Jesus says, there's all this fruit that's meant to refresh you. There's all these benefits that come with the gospel that we're not pulling down and eating at all. We're just reading right through them. And then you get growth. Look at verse 8. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, proving yourself to be my disciples. Here's what I would say. Uh, If you're not a believer, let me just put this before you. There are some things that only God can do in your life that you can't do for you. You can produce some moralism. You can produce some nicety. There's a lot of things that you can do as a not follower of Jesus. I've got plenty of non-Christian friends who are much nicer than some of you. (laughs) I just laughed because I thought that was funny. Maybe you didn't. Um, But, you know, we all know moral people that are atheists, but here's what, God can do something, he can produce fruit in your life that can't be produced any other way. He can give you a love for your enemies. How else are you going to get that? He can give you a gentleness when somebody gossips against you. He can give you a perseverance when you have cancer and your body's failing. He can give you a heart of praise and a heart of worship when nothing in your life is going well. There, by being attached by Christ, there are certain things that can be produced in your life that can't be produced any other way 
besides being attached to Christ. And he gives security. Look at verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now abide in my love. I, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting that all high school freshmen get tattoos. But if you're going to get a tattoo, I would suggest it might be this verse. And not just high school freshmen, but 40 and 50-year-olds as well. Because who doesn't need to know in this world, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that you're loved? Well, a high school student who can't find a date and can't make the team doesn't need to know that they're loved. What 40-year-old businessman who just failed miserably, and when everybody else is taking off in business, and you can't even pay your mortgage, doesn't need to know that they're loved. Not based on their performance, but because God loves them. What wife in a lifeless, sexless marriage doesn't need to know that she's loved? What kid who's been abused by somebody they trusted doesn't need to know that they're loved? And if we can get that fruit, verse 9, as a father has loved me, so I have loved you, abide in my love. If you can get that fruit, if you can abide in the love of Christ for you, to really abide in that, to rest in that, to put your identity in that, then you won't have to grope around trying to get all these things, your emotional needs met from relationships that can never give it to you in the first place. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now abide in my love. And then he goes on. Here's another fruit, which is obedience. If you keep my commands, you will abide in my love, just as I kept my Father's commands, and oh, I abide in his love. Now, some of you might say this. This is the part of Christianity I don't like. I don't like that Jesus tells me what to do. I don't like that Jesus is always saying, these are my commands. This is how you have to live. This is how your sexuality should be. This is how you use your tongue. This is how you should think about any number of things. This is who you forgive. This is when you forgive. I don't like that Jesus gives me all those commands. But here's what I would suggest. You're going to adopt a set of rules one way or the other. Everybody lives under a set of rules or commands. The commands of Christ are light. His burden and his yoke are easy. The commands of this world are not light, and they will crush you. So many cultural examples I could give, but let me uh, just give a hypothetical one, which is not hypothetical. Let's just say you have this command that, you, that everybody should act a certain way, and you tweet it. I almost guarantee you four or five years later, somebody's going to bring up that tweet and say, you said everybody, no tolerance on these issues, and you've done exactly that. We see that all the time. And those commands, those laws, they crush us because there's no grace, there's no mercy. As one commentator said recently, we live in a society where everything is permitted, but nothing is forgiven. And what Christ does is he says, no, there's a certain way that you need to walk that protects you from you and protects you from others. And if you mess up, there's also loads of forgiveness. The, the fruit of that is everywhere. I'm not going to shun you. And these commands that I give you are not meant to crush you. They're meant to drive you to Christ. That's the purpose of the commands, to make you long for Christ, where there's forgiveness, where there's mercy, and where there's grace. It's a beautiful picture. Now, why do we have such a hard time keeping the commands? Here's why. 
because we detach verse 10 from verse 11. And what verse 11 says is, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy might be full. If you want to keep the commands of Christ, and we want obedience, that's part of the fruit of the Spirit, is to be obedient to what God is asking us to do, whether it's generosity, whether it's keeping from envy, whether it's not coveting, whether it's honoring your mom or your dad, not having other gods before you, not making idols to worship, whatever the commands are, the only way or the main way that you can keep them is by realizing these are meant for my joy. He's not trying to oppress me. He's not trying to make me just jump through hoops. These are actually all meant for my joy. He's trying to help me by telling me where to walk and how to walk and to walk in the spirit, not according to the flesh. He's trying to give me joy, not rob me from my happiness. He's trying to give me joy. Just last week, uh, K2, which is a summit right below Everest, the next highest summit, but it's a harder mountain to climb than Everest. So it's pretty rare that people get up there. Uh, I think the only person that has ever made it in the summer happened this year in all of its history. But uh, five or six people just died. And they just found them. It took them weeks to find them. They couldn't even find them. And it was, I think, five guys and two Sherpas, all very experienced. And when they found them, you know what they found? They were scattered all over the mountain. You know what they found? They found that they would unclip themselves somehow. Somewhere along the way. They, don't, they still don't know what happened. They'll never know what happened. But somewhere along the way, they had the thought in their head, if I just unclip from this line, if I'm not obedient to this, if I don't have to remain with this, I don't have to buy with it, if I can unclip, then I can, whatever they were thinking, and they all died. Some avalanche, something took them all off the mountain and scattered them. It is for our joy, it is for our joy that Jesus says, abide with me. These are my commands. These are the ways that we walk. So do I have to be alone? No. Here's the second question. Does Christianity make a difference? Yes. Look at verse 12 through 17. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me. I chose you, and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. Does Christianity make a difference? Yes. Why? Because it gives us two things, and the first of which is communal and sacrificial love. I don't mean like the Beatles, love, 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 love the one you do, all you need is love. Those songs are easy to sing. Those four from Liverpool, they put those tunes in our heads, but they never define love. They never tell us what it is. They just tell us to find it and to get it somehow and to sing about it. But here Jesus defines what it is. This is my commandment that you love one another until they get hard to love. Nope. That you love one another until they fill in the blanks. That you love one another as I have loved you. This sacrificial type of love. The person in your Sunday school, your journey group, your community group that's hard to love, you love them the way that I love you. 
And I've given my life for you. And I've gone to the cross for you. And I've put up with your stupid and silly questions. And I dealt with you betraying me. And I dealt with you denying me. And at every turn, I keep extending grace and mercy and forgiveness. And you repay evil, and I turn the other cheek. Now go love somebody the way that I have loved you. Would Christianity make a difference in this world if Christians just took that one verse seriously? Just that verse alone. Everybody's looking at Christians going, does Christianity make a difference at all if you're a Christ follower? And it would if we would simply say, my command is this, I'm going to love you even though you have a different political views, even though you spit upon me, even though you don't like me, I'm going to love you. I'm going to love you whether you hate it or whether you love it because Christ has loved me that way. It's sacrificial. See, that's what you have to dig into when you can't love your kids or when you can't love your parents or when you're struggling to love your neighbor or the person, I usually say at the water cooler, but we don't have water coolers anymore, the person on the Zoom call, I guess. When you're struggling to love somebody, you got to tap into this verse. I'm going to love you the way that Jesus loved me. That's, that's the command that's going to bear fruit. And it's communal. Look at verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that he lays down his life for his friends. It's the vision for what a church like Mitchell Road could be, that somebody would walk into this church and they would say, uh, why do you like these people? They're nothing like you. They're annoying. They're, you know, a pain. Why do you like these people? Your response should be, I, what makes you think I like them? I don't like them. I love them. I love them because Christ told me to love them. Anne Lamont tells a story, and don't let this uh, distract you, but she tells a story about how much she hates Dick Cheney. Don't let that part distract you. That's her opinion. It's not my opinion. But she says, I hate Dick Cheney, but I'd wash his feet. And I'm pretty sure he'd wash mine. Because he loves Jesus, and I love Jesus, and that's enough. That's so convicting to me. Somebody, she says, I don't like that guy at all. But I'd wash his feet. What if church could be that kind of place? What, what if we could be that ecosystem where if people even just got close to us, they could say, you people are weird. You're nothing like each other, but there's some fragrance of love here that I don't get anywhere else. Don Carson uh, says it this way. I've read this to you, I think, before. He says, ideally, the church itself is not made up of natural friends. It's made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not a common education, a common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything of the sort. Christians come together because they've been loved by Jesus himself. They're a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. It'd be incredible if we could pattern that in our high schools. If we can pattern that uh, in our workplaces, if we could learn to love the way Christ has loved us. Here's a second thing that shows that Christianity makes a difference. There's a Christ-like friendship. Look at what he says in verse 14, 15. 
You are my friends if you do what I command. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all that I've heard from my father, I've made known to you. Okay, now pause and just get yourself here. Here's what Jesus says. The king of kings, the ruler of the universe, we got to decide, do you believe that or not? Okay, check, you do who's come to earth, the second person of the Trinity, to show us what the love of the Father is like, to redeem all of humanity to himself, who has changed the landscape geographically in every other way. Matter of fact, Christianity is the only religion that has crossed all of the geographical, all the caste systems, all the generations, all the different... Christianity is the only one that has been successful across the board like that. And here Jesus is saying, I call you a friend... The king of kings thinks that you're one of his friends. You have to decide, are you going to be astounded by that or not? Or do you think that Jesus is just out to get you? Or he's putting up with you? Or when he thinks about you, when Christ thinks about you, he thinks about you like a close friend. That's astounding. The love of God in Christ to say, you're not just a servant. You're not just jumping through the hoops. You're my friend. You know, this is a bad equivalent. But now that you're his friend, you're you're doing it together. It would be like if some hedge fund manager out of Chicago or New York or Connecticut, pick your poison, but one of those big three, some hedge fund manager comes to the custodian and says, look, I've I've seen you clean these toilets for the last five years. You're doing a great job. Keep doing it. I'll, I'll give you a dollar raise. He's viewing them like a servant. But if that hedge fund head comes to that guy and says, hey, you know what? You're doing a great job. And uh, I'm going to give you 10% of the company. And you want to come to the U.S. Open with me? We'll j- jump in the chopper and we'll go. You know, that guy is going to clean the toilets next day better than he's ever cleaned them in his entire life. He's like, now we're doing it together. I'm, I've got joint ownership in this. I've got shared this, shares in this company. I'm a shareholder of what God's doing in this world. And that's why he says, you're my friends. Because you're no longer a servant. I've let you in. Look at what it says in the middle of verse 15. I've let you into what the master is doing. And I've called you to this work. And now you and I, after I leave, are going to change the world together. We're going to completely turn this place upside down. I loved the exploration camp we did last week. Jason Yon showed a video. And the video was of all the kids uh, saying, Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number one, what is the chief end of man? And you know the answer. I hope you do. Anyway, if you don't, you need to learn it. To glorify God and to joy him forever. And to watch all of these kids say, what's the chief end of man? And they all responded, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. I thought those are the marching orders. That's what Jesus is getting at. You got cancer? Glorify God and enjoy him forever. You lose your job? Glorify God and enjoy him forever. You're trying to decide what school to go to? Glorify God and enjoy him forever. Like this, he's called you into this friendship 
to where now you're appointed to go do these beautiful good works. Look at what he says in verse 16. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit would abide. So now I want you, I know you're in this industry. I know you struggle with depression. We'll find a way to glorify God and enjoy him forever. I know you have anxiety. I know you've made a lot of money. Glorify God and enjoy him forever. Wherever God has planned you, whatever industry, whatever relationship, whatever situation, whatever trial, now he's appointed you to bear fruit. To go into that trial, to go into that situation and say, give me love. God, I'm begging for it. Give me patience. Make me a great friend. Give me gentleness. Give me self-control. To bear all of this wonderful fruit. And you have a friend in Christ. And look, friends, you wonder if Christianity would make a difference. It does because we all desperately need friends. I'm going to put a graphic on the board if we have it. I don't think it's on there, but yeah, here it is. I'll move out of the way. Graphic from 2022, Gallup poll in 1990. I'll explain it to you. Just look at the gray part. Men in 1990, gray registered no close friends. And 2021, that's 3%, no close friends. In 2021, 15% said they have no close friends. Now look at the far side. Uh, In 1990, 40% of men said they had 10 or more friends. By 2021, just 30 years, 15% said they have 10 or more friends. Women didn't even register for women. In 1990, you couldn't find a woman that said she had no close friends. Now you can find 10%, one out of 10, would say, I don't have one one close friend. In 1990, 28% of women said, I've got 10 or more friends. I've got plenty of people. Now it's 11%. Now take that graphic off because those... Keep looking at it. Nobody will pay attention to a word I'm saying. I'm not just trying to bring sociology or psychology into this. I'm saying, you know what the world is longing for? Somebody to be their friend. Somebody, anybody to be their friend. And here you have Jesus himself saying, I'm calling you a friend. I want to be your friend. And then once you realize Jesus loves you that way, and you start loving others the way that Jesus loves you, you won't be able to deal with the amount of friends that you have. The, the whole unlocking for what the human heart is longing for, that sometimes statistics like that show improve, is it's all longing for the gospel, and it's all longing for this that we see in John chapter 15. Today I call you friends. And lastly and quickly, here's the last question that Jesus answers. What will happen if I follow Christ? Well, it might not go well. I love, I love Jesus' honesty here. Look at verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. <laughs> so he's saying to the disciples, okay, after this, I'm going to die. Basically, they don't know that. And there, you might have some problems. The world might start to hate you. And when the world hates you, don't try to find comfort. Just realize you're connected with me. It hated me too. We're in it together. And so I'm, abide with me. I'll abide with you. You're going to fill up in your bodies what's lacking in the afflictions of Christ. It's okay. It's quite okay. Look at verse 19. If you're of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, I chose you out of the world, and therefore the world hates you. 
Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecute me, they'll persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Why would the world hate you? Because somewhere along the way, by the way that you love them, by the way that you forgive, the way that you repent, the way that we come to the cross and say we're sorry, that we need help, that we need forgiveness, all of that is going to remind them that they won't repent and they can't ask for forgiveness and they can't love that way. And that's what's going to drive them to hate you. Not because you do something to get them to hate you, but simply because you're working out the gospel. Verse 23, whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they've seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. But then, even for hated, we have a helper. Verse 26, but when the helper comes who I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. So let me summarize it. Here's what Jesus says. Do I have to be alone in this world? No. You can always abide with me. And when you abide with me, you're going to produce loads of fruit insane amount. It's going to fall off the branches of your life. It's going to be incredible. And will we, this little band of 12 people meeting here in this house before everything breaks apart, is Christianity going to make a difference at all? Oh yeah, because you're going to love each other with this communal, sacrificial world, and this group of 12, soon to be 11, is going to literally change the world in the direction of human history. It's going to make a huge difference. And you'll always have a friend in me. And yes, the world might hate you because you're not like them. That's okay. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. And he's going to help you anytime you need it. You can't love your spouse? That's okay. Ask for the Holy Spirit to help you. You're having a hard time stealing from your company? That's okay. Ask the Holy Spirit to convict you. You're having a difficulty in this trial? Ask the, I'm giving you a helper. I'm sending somebody so you don't have to do this whole gig in your own strength. And he's going to remind you, the Holy Spirit is going to remind you that I'm alive and well. Uh, Ronald Asmudson, a Norwegian explorer, when he got to the meridian North Pole, he let go a homing pigeon. And the homing pigeon traveled all the way to Norway and showed that up at his wife's wife's, uh, window by her bed. And she said she knew at that moment, because she saw the pigeon, my husband's alive. The Holy Spirit reminds you Christ is alive. And Christ is alive and well. And so now, wherever you are, we abide in him. So take your order of worship and look at that next song. Because this was written by Henry Light in 1793. Henry Light was an orphan. Bounced around from orphan house to orphan house to orphan house to orphan house until he finally became a pastor. And then it didn't go well for him. Wasn't hugely successful. He had a problem with his lungs, developed tuberculosis, and the counsel of that day was, hey, you got to get out of England. 
Like lung problems, not good in England. Way too wet, way too damp. So you got to go to France. And by the way, y'all feel free to send me to France anytime you want to. Uh, but he goes to Nice, France, where he's going to try to recover. He doesn't think he's going to be recovered going to be able to recover. He goes into his room. He comes out an hour later, hands to one of his friends a sheet of paper, which is this hymn. He goes to France. He makes it four weeks, and then he dies. He was 54. That was his life. That was his whole life. But what he wrote is, even though I'm in this difficult place, I'm going to abide with Christ. Abide with me, fast falls the even tide. In other words, the sun is setting on this gig. (laughs) Can you imagine him writing that without being able to get a full breath into his lungs? And I can feel it in my bones. This isn't going well. The darkness deepens. He was struggling with depression as well. Lord, with me abide. And then this, when other helpers fail and other comforts flee, help of the helpless abide with me. That comfort that I had 10 years ago in the arms of a new lover doesn't bring me comfort anymore. That joy I got from athletics that I can't play more because I blew up my knee or whatever it is, that comfort doesn't help anymore. That help I have from rising to success and having the world ask me my opinions and then I retired and nobody cares what I think, that doesn't help anymore. When all of those things flee, the helper comes and says, abide with me. So friends, I want you to just read this text. We're going to sing it. I want you to sing it though. I want you to think of where is it that you need to remain with Christ? You need to connect with Christ. You need to abide with him. Where is it you need to draw close to him? In faith, in trust, in repentance. Where is it that you need to abide with him? And then let's not just sing it. Let's pray it as we sing it. And as we pray it, Then we're going to rise and we're going to sing loudly and brightly. Come people of the risen king, let's go and rejoice. Let's go from here and let's go bear much fruit. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit.